You're listening to a Soul Fire Productions podcast. Okay. Wow. Can't believe we're doing this. This is wild. I am still in shock right now. I'm so <laughs> happy and so excited though. Oh. Well, I'm so um, honored to have you on this show. I was um, telling Connor this morning just how much it means to me to have someone who has been a listener of this show and in this community and also a friend of ours for years now to close out this podcast with a bang. Um, but I really, I, I respect you so much and you have had quite the life, little lady. Um, and I, I oftentimes when we connect, um, you know, whether it was when you were in circle with us or us talking on the side, I often would just take a step back and just be in such awe of your strength and your willingness to continue to come back and keep going. Because I think a lot of people, and we'll get into what I'm vaguely talking about right now, but a lot, I think a lot of people, especially you're 25 years old, um, a lot of people would retract and they would hide and they would disengage and numb out from life because Sometimes things are really difficult and we don't have to show up and you continue to keep going for it. So I want to get into your life story, which I very rarely do. But I think for people to really understand you and your strength, um, I want you to share with us um, some of the things that have really impacted you from cancer, from sexual abuse, from being in a cult. Um, and how that is sort of weaved together throughout your life. So just catch us up on what the fuck's been going on with Uma. So I was born and now I'm here. I'm yes, kidding. exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was born in the United States, but to an immigrant family from India. And that already kind of shaped a lot of my life in just navigating um, this having a culture at home that is one completely different culture from the world outside the doors of my home. And from such a young age, I was just in observance of the differences between what was going on in my house and you know the domestic violence, the really dysfunctional relationship of my family and everything out in the world that I was told to be taboo and wrong and to stay away from even though I was, you know, raised in this country. And so, I mean, something I've just now kind of started thinking about is I actually didn't speak till I was three years old. I was just observing everything and taking everything in. And I was forced to talk by a speech therapist, but that's an aside. Um, so I grew up just really in a state of observance and confusion and frankly, just feeling very disengaged with the world and that I never knew how to fit in. I had always been someone who just didn't have a filter really and was asking all the questions all the time in elementary school beyond. Um, everyone around me was just kind of weirded out by me. And so I learned to view the world at the time as an other and to just carry so much shame for the way I was. And that kind of translated into so that and many other reasons re resulted in so many mental health issues from a very early age and chronic illness that as I can remember as far as I've been alive, but at least from, you know, seven or eight years old, just having no energy to do anything whatsoever. And just my family being confused as to what was wrong with me, but not knowing how to help me. And I just was kind of spiraling in in confusion. And that just kind of feels like what my childhood was. And then I experienced a period of chronic sexual abuse when I was 12 years old, which I feel was the catalyst for moving further into the abyss of confusion um, because I wasn't believed and I didn't know how to reconcile the world around me and what was being told um, my experience was versus what my own experience was. And I really internalized at the time that everyone around me has the answer. Everyone around me is correct and I am incorrect. So. Um, that shaped, that continued to shape my life moving forward. And from, from 12 to 14, I was just 
incredibly lost and confused. And I, I grew up in, like I said, in a South Asian home where I was being taught, taught one thing to be true and everyone else in the world, it seemed, was living a totally different life. And my brain kind of latched onto religion and not understanding why people suffer the way they suffer. And so I was just asking so many questions to myself and the people in my South Asian community about why people suffer and was never really receiving an answer that I would accept. And so I started seeking answers in other religions, going to church with my friends secretly, joining the Muslim Student Association. I want to be clear, the religion at home was Hinduism. So just to frame that, but by the time I was 14, I finally received an answer that kind of sort of made sense to me that I could kind of sort of go with, which is everything we did in our past life was the, is the result of now what we're experiencing and karma is the answer to why we're suffering. So you didn't really do anything in this life. It was all from your past life. And so my brain was like, okay, let's go with that. And I unknowingly at 14 joined a religious cult that was also involved with um, cases of sexual abuse that were at the top of the FBI's most wanted list. It was just at the time and uh, such a, to everyone else in the world around me, the cult was a cult and the cult was something really, really dangerous. But I was taught to feel like there was an answer within the cult that everyone else just didn't understand and that it could alleviate me of my suffering. And so I just dedicated my life to this cult for seven years. Um, I was not a normal teenager. I was working from the day I turned 15 years old and every penny I earned, I used to go to the cult to fund the cult to purify myself more and more as they taught me, the more I give money to them, the the closer I will get to achieving God realization. And then I graduated high school. I went to college thinking I will figure something out to continue to make money to, to be a part of the cult and donate to the cult. At that point, my chronic illness and mental health was so severe that I couldn't get out of bed except to force myself to go to work and survive. I failed all of my classes. I thought I was stupid. I felt like I was incapable of anything. So after two years, I quit uh, my psychology degree and I figured, well, I have always been a singer songwriter. I have received so much validation for that. I have won so many awards, so many competitions. I should just do this and make money and make a name for myself and finally find some semblance of loving myself. And so then I went into uh, music school for three years. I started pursuing a singer songwriter career. I was performing at the House of Blues in Dallas. I was selling out shows. I was about to be on NBC's The Voice. I had a whole thing going with music. And then at 22 years old, my doctor found a tumor in my neck that I had not realized was there for many months because I was so dissociated from my body. I was so out of tune with myself. I was just floating. I was just, I had no idea what was going on and what I was doing. I was hanging on for dear life. So I got diagnosed with metastatic thyroid cancer, and I had surgery to remove my thyroid gland and the lymph nodes around it. And in doing so, my vocal nerves ended up being damaged, as fate has it, through the surgery. And I found out a few months later that most likely I would never be able to sing again, and that chapter was closed for me. And so, so much like you, Kelly, I was faced with this complete stripping of my identity and everything I thought to be true of myself. And also the the one thing that ever gave me validation and self-esteem. And I was on top of dealing with cancer as a 22 year old and dealing with metastasis to different parts of my body and navigating that all by myself and all of the mental health issues I hadn't dealt with, the trauma I hadn't dealt with, the cult that I was you know, pulling myself out of. I also had lost my entire identity and everything I knew and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know um, how to live. I didn't know what the point was. Um, if I couldn't be good at something, if there wasn't something that something could that people could just love me for and tell me I'm good at, then what do I do with my life? 
And that is when I met psychedelic therapy (laughs) and also just allowing myself to become more deeply trusting of my husband who I had been with for a few years at that point and just really starting to see myself as a human being and not as a machine who needs to output enough to be loved for what I do. I had to make the shift of seeing myself as just someone who exists and someone who is worthy of existing and being and being loved, even if I could do nothing for the rest of my life. At that point, I didn't think I could ever go back to school because I had failed out and I thought I was stupid. I couldn't sing. I had barely any energy to work. And I used to work compulsively since I was 15. I I couldn't do anything. So that was one of the greatest um, opportunities for me to dig deep and find some semblance of purpose in just existing and just being. And slowly but surely, as I was getting better physically and getting better mentally and um, just kind of fighting and fighting and holding on with the hope that maybe something, maybe something is worth living for. I wasn't sure. I had no guarantee that there was any reason to continue fighting on. But so, for some reason, the grace of having love around me, I, I, I kept at it. I was encouraged to try to return back to school to see if it's something I could conquer this time because I really, truly did love the brain and I talked about it all day long anyway, Um, initially with psychology. And as we'll talk about later, I'm going into neuroscience now. Um, I went back to school. I made all A's. I brought my GPA up from a 1.8 to a 3.5. I graduated. I decided to go to grad school for neuroscience and Every single day, I am still choosing to figure out what it means to exist in this world, not for what I'm doing and who I am with my identity, but for just living and being as a human deserving of love for no other reason. So that's my life. (laughs) Girl. So for people who don't didn't know any of this until you just shared your story. Um, I'm imagining they're sitting there thinking, holy shit. She's 25 and has lived a bajillion lifetimes in this one. And not just lived a lot of lives like, ooh, I've seen the world. I've had a lot of experiences. Like, lived in extreme circumstances and somehow pulls yourself up and out and through. And you to me, are one of the happiest, most joyful people I'm, I've ever encountered. And I feel that that comes across in the way you even talk about all of this. And I also know that there is no spiritual bypassing and there is no avoiding of how difficult this was because I've worked with you as a client. I know personally how you show up to this shit. So I want to go back. Because it seems like every time something difficult was presented to you, you continued to choose yourself. So sexual abuse and the cult. I want to go back to that part of your life. Um, What was going on in your mind that you knew this is not okay and I need to remove myself from this toxic environment? And how did you do that? So the sexual abuse was for a month when I was 12, visiting India all by myself, um, just with my little brother, um, with a not immediate family member. And that, um, to be honest, I never really escaped. I was so confused as to what was happening. And I, I just, I'm still working through the visceral feeling that my body was giving me, even though I had no concept of sex or abuse or anything at all. Uh, the visceral feeling that this is so bad, I need to run away, I need to get away from it. But I had been conditioned at the time to believe that my feelings were wrong, and that I didn't know any, I didn't know what I was talking about. And so in that scenario, I am actually working through the fact that I didn't run away. But what I have done is even though after the fact, there's so much nuance in this, but I wasn't believed and I was 
uh, made to believe that I imagined all of it and it was a misunderstanding. Um, what I have done is since I've been working on accepting that it actually did happen, just really, truly standing in my truth amongst the repercussions of people in my life and my family that, um, do not benefit from me sitting in my truth and claiming that truth and not shying away from it. And then with the with the cult, it did take me seven years to leave. But what I do know, similarly to the sexual abuse, was from the moment I joined and I became privy as a 14-year-old to the inner workings of the cult and um, to all of the manipulation and brainwashing that was happening at the time, there was a part of me that felt so unsafe there that felt like I should not be there, that this was not the place for me, that, you know, my doubt of what they were doing was real. But I stayed there for so long because, again, I had been also conditioned to not believe any of those feelings. And I was so desperate for some semblance of a family who cared about me and for some semblance of stability and, you know, seeking the truth. I put truth in air quotes about life that when someone presented it to me with such certainty, um, I overrode my own intuition for so long to make that right for me. And what helped me through seven years of feeling that and finally slowly disengaging from it was this experience I had meeting my now husband, where, I mean, from the time I met him, he was like the one person I'd ever met who um, I felt so seen and understood in the way I thought. And we both grew up feeling so isolated and confused because of how different we were. And then we found each other. And so there was no way for me to share the cult with him when I was in it um, to where it would make sense to him. And I've started to notice that I was hiding it from him and I was keeping that part a secret and I was, you know, twisting and turning any involvement I had to make it, you know, for him to be, not call me out on what I was involved with. Mm -hmm. And so in observing that, I, I just started questioning, like, do I choose the cult or do I choose, and I didn't call it a cult at the time, do I choose this organization, this, this religion, this way of life, or do I choose this person who was showing me something different that feels so right to me. And the hardest part for me was that the cult had also convinced me that any relationship outside of the cult would be a detraction from my spiritual path. And it was all a distraction. It was all um, part of the material world. Just there was so much conditioning around romantic relationships and all of it being wrong. So I was also lying to the cult when I was in a relationship with my husband. So I was faced with the crossroads and I, for some reason, chose what felt right to me, my husband. And I was like, if this is all wrong, and I'm going to learn that they indeed the cult was right, then I will, you know, leave him and I will never date anybody again. And I will go back and I will do my penance and I will, you know, beg God for forgiveness or whatever I thought at the time. And I never went back. And slowly but surely, I think it took three years for me to start really being honest about what was going on in the cult with my husband first, and then people outside of that too. And also learning about cults in school through my psychology degree and being like, oh my gosh, every single one of those things was what was happening. And starting to finally look at the objective truth of the sexual abuse and the FBI cases and all of the things that the media was reporting about the cult and um, looking at it outside of the lens of what the cult taught me, which was that I've, actually the world is out to get us because we have the truth and they want to shut us down and they want to hide us. So they're making up stories about us. So I ultimately, uh, it was a combination of love and support from my husband accepting my experience and letting me process it and getting therapy from a spiritual abuse therapist and learning to honor what I actually knew inside of me. Mm. And when you were you out of the cult before you had cancer, I forgot the timeline. So you I left. I, I did. Okay. How much time between? And I didn't. I would say I was fully disengaged from them when I was 21 and then I got cancer at 22. So about a year. Wow. It's so yeah. interesting to me. You know, you know me. I really believe that 
our illnesses, whether chronic illness, which is my experience and yours, cancer, like you, um, is a physical manifestation of other shit. And mm-hmm. not that we like go ask for it. No one goes and says, please give me cancer. This sounds like a great idea. But it, I, I really do believe that it's the body talking to us. It's a physical manifestation of something happening. So I, I'm curious your thoughts on that. But I want like, what is it that your body was trying to tell you for so long from the chronic illness at such a young age to then you advocate for yourself and you're like, fuck this, I'm out of this cult to then getting cancer a year later? What is it that you feel now with perspective was going on? So many things. And part, just as a side note, part of my interest in neuroscience is to understand on a very physiological level what the um, neuroplasticity of, of trauma and of stress hormones and all of that, like make the true connection to different autoimmune diseases and cancer and dysfunctions in the body. So that's an aside. Clearly, I believe that. Um, what I, I mean, what I think my body was trying to tell me was so many things, but for, I mean, so I started to be more specific. I started to have symptoms of, um, what I now know to be Hashimoto's thyroiditis and um, an autoimmune disease of my skin called hydrogenitis superativa and polycystic ovarian syndrome and um, myofasciitis, just so many bodily things from the time I was eight years old. And I think that was a complete reflection of the environment I was being cooked in, in, in my home and the, uh, the, the abuse, the constant uh, pain between the people in my home targeted towards me. Um, to be quite honest, I was shamed for my body, my skin color, my gender as being a female from the time I was born for various reasons that are related to my family and to culture. And so it's, I think there's no question of if I'm being told that my body is wrong and that I am wrong for existing, that my body's going to respond to that and is going to scream that, you know, it, it's, being abused and that it, I hate myself and that my body will respond to me hating myself and just being so, so traumatized to, for a lack of a better word. And for cancer, I mean, there's so many meanings I've extrapolated from exactly how it showed up for me. The fact that it was in my neck and the fact that the, one of the biggest byproducts was that I lost the one thing that I yielded self-esteem from my whole life. I mean, talk about a lesson of I have to face the loss of the one thing I ever thought I was good at and the one reason I thought I was possibly worth being alive for. So there's that. And I mean, cancer in the psychological experience of it is the facing of your possible impending mortality, which you know, as humans, the one thing we all know is that we're going to die, but most people don't actually sit with that idea until they're forced to, or someone else in their life is facing that themselves. But me having that experience at 22 years old, it showed me so much about why I believe it happened to me because I was not living. I was not alive. I was surviving. I was getting by and I had settled for thinking that life was just breathing and working until something took me out. I was almost just waiting to be taken out by something. And Mm. I really, truly felt, if I'm being honest, when I was diagnosed, like, oh, what a relief. (laughs) What a relief that this is, this might possibly end. And that scared the shit out of me that I felt happy about it. First, I also felt after, you know, so much fear. And of course, the primal part of me was like, I need to stay alive. I need to do what I need to do to stay alive. But the the trauma part of me, the part of me that um, felt something beyond primal emotions was, please just save me from, from the misery of existing. And when I saw that, I was like, I have a choice here. I have a choice to actually start living and to not necessarily get to the bottom of all of this because i don't think there's an you know anymore there's like a one answer to what is life right but to just understand my dysfunction and look for any possible semblance of happiness or at least peace and not suffering all the time so a lot of things yeah you know it's it's so 
I mean, you've, you've never said that to me before. The idea of relief when being diagnosed with cancer is so interesting because it's, it's an, and you say this word opportunity and I commend you for that because you never play the victim to my knowledge. Um, at least in this stage of your life, right? I'm sure that there have been moments <laughs> we've all done that and it's to- I totally get it. But it's an opportunity to choose life, to choose to be here. Because, I mean, who knows? Maybe you don't choose life and you die from that cancer diagnosis. Like, we'll never know. But you chose life and you're at a stage of thriving and you completely turned your life around. And it's so interesting. And you're right. I do feel like, especially around death, we have to be shown something so aggressive and so abrupt that it forces us to make a decision. It forces us to come to some sort of reckoning with life and death. And what is this to me? Knowing that you made that choice of life, how do you reflect back on that now, seeing the way your life has panned out? just a few years later. First of all, just honing on the just a few years later, I cannot fathom that it has been just three years since that happened because I I know this is so said all the time, but I truly feel like a completely different person with a completely different life, even though I have the same partner, the same dog, the same body, the same face, I am just a totally different human being. And Looking back at that choice, I I will not say right now that life is perfect and great and like, you know, it, is it for anyone? No, absolutely not. And every single day I feel like I am choosing to live. But that being said, when I made that one choice, had I not made that, I I it my heart breaks at what I had I would be giving up and I feel so I'm working on feeling more compassion for that little 22 year old who could have never imagined that any of this life right now could be real, that I could be functioning, that my brain could be functioning, that I could be speaking at this rate, that I could have a husband, that I could be healthy enough to to live, that I could do anything. I just, I'm I could have chose not to. And sometimes whenever I feel helpless and I feel hopeless, I remember that I could not be here right now. And it is a miracle that something got me to choose life, even when I was relieved and I wanted to take me out. And it's, it's really shameful to say that out loud because so many people are diagnosed with cancer and, you know, want nothing but to live. And then they don't get to live this lifetime out. In the, in the way that they thought they would. And so for me to say that I have the privilege of living and to admit that I didn't want to is very shameful. And at the same time, I feel like I have to say it because I don't believe I'm the only one who has experienced that. Well, I just want to say, I don't think you should feel any shame because I actually think that owning that experience and that feeling is the greatest gift that you can give other people because I think that that's an extremely relatable feeling. And even if people have never been diagnosed with cancer, but are suicidal or have had moments Mm -hmm. where they don't want to live, I don't think that there's necessarily shame in that. I really believe that there's actually power in owning that experience. And you're going to help so many people to not feel alone in that feeling because that's a really isolating thing to go through. And I, I respect you so much for owning that. Thank you for saying that. And you're you're, you're so right. I just want to share the two brands that have really impacted me and changed my life and continue to change the lives of so many of the people that I love. And in my suitcase pack to take to the girls, I have my Organifi chocolate gold because as you learned in the last episode or two episodes ago, Katie Calder can't live without it. And because she's not flying here this time to get inside my pantry, I shall bring to her chocolate gold, you guys, is the freaking best. I also love to pair it with pumpkin spice. It is so delicious. It's like chocolatey 
pumpkin frothy deliciousness. So I do a full scoop of chocolate gold and half a scoop of pumpkin spice. And it is the absolute best. It tastes so fucking good. No joke. So if you have yet to try Organifi out, all the options, green juice, red juice, all the golds, harmony for PMS symptoms. The cacao is so delicious. I love immunity. Their protein powders, truly everything is top notch and I cannot live without it. So go to Organifi.com slash Kelly T and you'll get 20% off your order. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash Kelly T. Use the code and get 20% off. I am also heavily packing element for this trip. I am very dry. Whenever I come from humidity back to Colorado, so Texas for the wedding and Thanksgiving, and then come back to Colorado, I am so dry. My eyes are dry. My nose is dry. Nosebleeds. I feel so dehydrated. So I'm just stocking up on element for this trip to Nashville. Um, I feel like it's more humid there, but travel just dehydrates me in general. So I'm going to probably be drinking a couple elements a day for the next few days just to make sure that I don't have a ton of jet lag. And then I come back to Colorado feeling really good and trying to keep myself from drying out as much as possible. And they just released the chocolate mint and some of the girls haven't tried that. So I'm really excited to take that out there for them to test out. It is my favorite one. I'm just going to say it. It's so good. You make it hot. It is meant for hot water and it tastes like a minty hot chocolate. And I put a little stevia in there sometimes. It doesn't really need it. So if you want it plain, highly recommend, but truly the best way to end the day. I cannot wait to just drink it all up with the girls. So go to drinklmnt.com, use the code Kelly T and you'll get an eight pack sampler for just the cost of shipping, which is $5 in the US. Can't wait for you to also try out the chocolate mint. It's the bomb. I want to go back to this idea of being a victim because <laughs> I am not kidding you. Every time I hear whether you text me or I see something on Instagram and you're going through some can't another cancer test or something pops up and they're not sure what it is or then you got into your accident, which we didn't even talk about that. Um recently in like this horrific car accident, um anytime something comes up, I I'm like flabbergasted. How is this girl you're so much younger than me. I still think of you like a girl. How is this young woman not being a victim? How is she not playing into this? And I also want to add the thing that's interesting is, you know, a child who is abused, a child who gets sucked into some fucking cult because they need support, a young person who is diagnosed with cancer. It's not like you can sit there and say, I'm going to take responsibility for this because what do we even know as kids? What do we even know as adults? There are things that happen that just don't make sense. I think mm -hmm. it's easy and it makes sense to play the victim in those moments because it's like, well, what else were you going to do versus playing a victim as an adult where you pick a fight and then you don't take responsibility for fighting with your husband and you're like, Ugh, he did this to me. And it's like, OK, Sally, like maybe take responsibility for once and stop being the victim in these bullshit arguments, right? Those are two very different things that we're talking about. I'm talking about you just don't play into any sort of narrative and you keep moving forward. I don't know. How do you do that? It's so interesting to try to come up with an answer to that because I, if I'm being really honest with you, I would love to, to claim that as something that I worked through and earned and worked hard at or something. but if I'm being honest, my pattern throughout life has actually been the opposite. As I'm learning, I tended to take responsibility for everything, even that wasn't my own doing mm. to a degree of real pain. Like I, apparently my brain couldn't comprehend that I could endure such horrific abuse at home. So it made it about me. My brain couldn't comprehend that I could endure sexual abuse. So it made it my fault. My brain couldn't comprehend that I entered into a cult and I was being, I was taken advantage of as a 14 year old. So it hit, it made it my fault that I got myself into this situation. So 
I've actually been, have been working on work, maybe undoing that narrative a little more and coming to a place of middle ground. I don't know that I have it in me to, and again, I'm not saying this from like, I earned this. It's just what my brain did, but I don't know that I have it in me to believe that things just happened to me and I have no part in it. Well, of course I got hit by a car and like I had nothing to do with that, but um, anything that is in my power moving forward, I feel like I really lean into like, you know, healing myself through that trauma and seeking out the help I need to, to work through all of this and um, figuring out, I, I don't, I believe that we create our perception of reality. It's a nuanced statement, but I believe that given more information, as you talk about so often in everything you do, given more information, we get to make different choices. And I am constantly looking at my perception and looking at what I, in the situation, I have the power to look at differently, what my responsibility is to at least work through the experience of whatever is objectively happening to me for me in this world. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think I, I, I earned like not being a victim, if Mm. that makes sense. Yeah. So then that's really interesting. Thank you for explaining that. I love that. I'm curious now, as you have identified that pattern, what is the balance for you of I'm taking responsibility for this and maybe I do need to apologize because I did something and the other side of I'm apologizing too much and I'm taking too much responsibility for shit that's not mine. How, what is that balance? What does that line look like? Balance? What is balance? <laughs> I do not know this concept of balance. <laughs> same girl, same. <laughs> oh, you ain't going to learn balance here. Uh-uh. <laughs> but trying, but, but trying for that. And I think I have, started to, I have always been incredibly overly, I will say, self-aware of what my part is, what I'm feeling, what I'm doing wrong. And so my problem has almost been the opposite, like you said, of taking responsibility for things that are not mine to take responsibility for. And so I try to look at the line when I can remove myself enough and actually observe a situation. Um, How much of it is my feelings and what I am actually doing versus what I am receiving from someone else. And that is hard because sometimes as you've talked about again, um, what we receive from others is colored by our own perception. So then it becomes, am I actually in quotes, objectively receiving something negative from a situation or a person, or am I just viewing it that way? Because I am committed to viewing people as out to get me or people hurting me or, you know, whatever my trauma in the past uh, perceives it as. And there's never really a clear answer, but I tend to take at least responsibility for how I am seeing the situation and how I'm feeling. And no matter what, even if it's Total, it ends up being totally somebody else's fault. Like someone was abusing me or someone was rude to me or whatever. Um, I still take responsibility for moving through the experience of the hurt and pain and shame without, you know, trying to make myself bad for having the situation or having the experience. Um, at least learning from it, understanding where it comes from and committing to try to move through it differently next time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you find so much joy in your life as you have worked through this and maybe reflect back on those difficult moments? Again, if I'm being super honest here, I think some of the joy that you and I get what I receive from other people, what they say about me to me, the the joy you're feeling is my joy of being in relationship with a human being who I am so honored to know and receive from. And 
that's part of it. And I think I wanted to say that because I know you've talked about your experience with being bullied before and through all the other trauma and parental family dynamics and all the things. I also grew up really lonely and grew up bullied by so many people and really felt like I had to, I would never be able to connect with anybody and no one would ever like me. And as two-year-old as that sounds, that's, that's what my belief was. And to, so to, to be in this new life where I have relationships that I'm still wrapping my head around having, having friendships, having people who see me, who, you know, actually like me, even though I'm flawed and I'm not perfect and I am not this or that thing, just because I exist to be in presence of that and have people in my life like that. I'm just in awe all the time. Like the gratitude of had I, like you said, had I given up three years ago, like I would never have been able to experience this new part of life. And not just that, but I think for me and for, for everyone experience is relative. So right now I still struggle so severely. And I, and I say that not as a victim, but just to be truthful of, you know, it's not like a one and done fix, like life is living. Um, and I'm lear- I'm honestly learning how to human and how to be a, a person now. Um, and so that comes with so much uh, learning and pain in letting go of the old and, you know, rewriting narratives and all the things that that's, that's hard, right? But for me, relative to being a zombie and not being alive and being on the brink of death so many times and um, not wanting to be alive, this all feels like such a gift. So I think for me, it's just comparing almost like in a stoicism way of like remembering the worst, but not so that you could stay in that narrative, but so you can find relativity to where you were before, not to this ideal we're sold of like complete and utter joy and happiness all the time. And if you're not experiencing that, then there's something wrong with you. I just remember pre pre this Uma, what mm-hmm. life was like. And so I'm just so joyful to even be here, even though it is so hard. Do you think that there's, um, you know, we talk a lot and you've been a part of this conversation of the idea of expanding your container. So the more pain and the more sadness and grief that we feel, the more our capacity to feel joy and happiness and pleasure also increases. It feels like to me, your your experiences early in life were really increasing your capacity for all of those quote unquote negative bad feelings that then allowed you to feel what you feel now. And you you couldn't feel it to the extent you do now without having something to compare it to. That's exactly it. And I will also add that I would label what I'm doing right now as expanding my container in the sense that because of all the pain and sorrow and trauma I suffered, what my brain decided to do was numb my numb me as much as it could and keep me just so at zero. So at, you know, teetering, I mean, it's basically either depression or just, you know, existing. And so I didn't feel the depth of my pain. I almost, I always bypassed it when I was younger as, you know, it could be worse. There's nothing wrong with my life. I should be grateful for what I have. And I just never let myself feel the pain of anything. I was also gaslit into believing I didn't have anything to feel pain for. Um, And so of course I felt no joy. I felt no anything. And I have been working on feeling like actually viscerally feeling and not avoiding or thinking my way out of or spiritually bypassing into um, or out of my quote unquote negative bad feelings so that I can feel this joy. And it's wild. It's so wild to, to train yourself to understand that emotions and feelings are just experiences and they are not permanent and they do pass, even though it might feel like in the moment they won't pass and you might want to give up because they feel so overwhelming and permanent, but they are just feelings and they're actually universally shared, even though it's really hard for me to believe sometimes that other people possibly feel the pain I'm feeling. But if we're all feeling them, we can also feel joy. So what, yeah, like you said, what I'm doing right now is learning how to feel both ends of it. Mm. And somehow I'm also feeling more of the joy than just like 90% pain. (laughs) I love that. So I think one of the most remarkable things, um, 
is when someone takes difficult things that they've been through and then becomes of service to others to help them heal and to help them navigate these moments. And that's what you're doing. And you have become such an advocate for young people who are diagnosed with cancer. You've become such a big psychedelic advocate. You're working through all these programs. You're facilitating. You're doing all of this. So it feels to me like you are really stepping into your purpose in such a big way. And I want to hear more and I want everyone to hear more about all of the amazing things that you're doing and curating and facilitating now. Thank you so much for, for saying that and helping me in this moment feel joy for myself. I almost feel like until you said that, I didn't feel permission to feel joy for what I'm doing and to truly admit that it comes from the pain. Because I think I told myself that if it was coming from the pain I experienced and it's not actually being of service for other people, and that is a narrative I'm rewriting now. So I, I just had to say that. But I went back to school, like I said earlier, for psychology thinking, well, first, I was just trying to prove to myself I could even do school and I could even earn a degree because I had told myself for so long it was impossible. And from there came this little nudge of maybe you can do something with this. Maybe you can become a therapist or a clinical psychologist. And so I started applying to grad school for all of that. And it felt, to be honest, like I was settling, like in the sense that I felt like that's the best I could do, but I actually wanted to do something different. And what I started to admit to myself was that I was obsessed with neuroscience. I was obsessed with understanding beyond what was consciously being expressed and felt and thought what on earth was going on in our brains. And I felt like I had just told myself for so long, it's one of those beliefs that you can dismantle about yourself that I'm too stupid, that I can't do this. I don't understand biology enough, whatever. I'm good at talking and I'm good at understanding people. So I guess psychology is where it's at. But one professor, a class that I had made an F in when I first started school, behavioral neuroscience to then making a hundred in, he, I asked him to write recommendation letters for me for my clinical psychology programs. And he was, he's a neuroscientist. He was like, but what about neuroscience? And he <laughs> basically was like, eh, I will write this for you if you consider neuroscience. And I was like, oh, okay, whatever. One program. I'll apply to one program. And I got into that one program and I was faced with, do I do what I think is comfortable or do I do what I am scared shitless of? And, but I, and I have no idea what I'm going to do with it, but that sets me on fire. And I was like, I'm already like living this life. I didn't know I could anyway. What the hell might as well just <laughs> go for it and try. So I started grad school for neuroscience and I have found such a love for for understanding the core level of what's happening with our memory and our memory processing and how much that plays into all these patterns we're talking about right now and through what it plays into post-traumatic stress disorder and if i haven't made clear already what psychedelics have the power to do for all of these processes and it's it's wild how undiscovered this territory is it's just now starting to become something that neuroscientists and people in the field are even having the capacity to think about because for so long it's been focused on, you know, neurological diseases, which are so important. But nonetheless, I feel like right now it's it's crazy how now when I come back to school is when the psychedelic movement is becoming it's having such a resurgence in in science with with the FDA, with the uh, with funding for the, some of the top schools in the world to be able to apply their knowledge to this. Um, it's it's still not fully there, but the fact that I get to come back at a time where imaging is at it is at its best, where psychedelics are being studied again. I was like, I just, I need to follow this. Like I am so interested. So my plan is to finish this master's program, working in a lab to understand how to work with memory on a neuronal level. And my plan and goal <laughs> to, to say this out loud is wild. I want to pursue the PhD program at Harvard Medical School because they just started a the Center for the Neuroscience of Psychedelics, which is my dream come true. It's like all they want to do, they want to understand what is happening with, with DMT, with psilocybin, with LSD, beyond just like, okay, we know it works 
to help with these psychological illnesses, but what's happening in the brain? Because I want to understand how to possibly figure out what we can do for people who experience trauma like you and me in the moment, in the aftermath of the trauma to avoid it, you know, debilitating anyone with things like chronic illness. And, you know, as much as there are lessons and beauty in it, also, if there's a way to work through it in a healthy way and possibly inhibit the full on takeover of our body, that would be nice. Uh, So that is, (laughs) yeah, that'd be great. (laughs) So that's one subset of my life right now. And it's very up in the air. It's very science changes every five seconds. So it's kind of hard to cling onto a path, which is hard for me. But that's that's one part. And simultaneously, as you alluded to before with how I work with people, when I was diagnosed with cancer at 22 and going through treatment, I was left in a complete shitstorm of like, what is life? What just happened? How do I navigate life? Apparently, I'm done with treatment, but I have no idea how to live with this experience. And I was so surprised at how there were hardly any resources available for people like me, because as I learned later, young adult cancer is some of the most uncommon experience. It's mostly pediatric or people over 55. So there's tons of resources for them. But for people who are coming into adulthood and learning how to manage a career in a family and be an adult with this impending doom of, oh, every six months, I might find out I might be dying. Like, it was so overwhelming. And so I just got some women together who were experiencing the same thing and just started meeting with them with no plan whatsoever. But just I want to talk to them every week and see what their experience is. And that has been going on for two, almost, almost three years now, almost three years now. And it's now become something called the Cancer Thriver Collective. And initially just started as a support group um, led by me as someone who was just like, completely like them and just facilitating conversations about the things that we had no place to talk about outside of people who understood what we were going through, like our families, even therapists who weren't trained to work with this or, you know, anyone in the world. And I then realized that this is something that sets me on fire so deeply. And I feel like this is part of what I want to be of service as in the world. And so I I didn't really know if that meant becoming a therapist, which is kind of like the only thing I knew of or or what I could do. And I learned about this new subsect of the mental health space called mental health peer support, which is just an incredible model of people who are using their lived experience and are then trained to work in mental health settings alongside the other professionals as part of their mental health team to support them in a way that Uh, professionals that kind of work above the person often miss like the nuances of the experience and what it's like to actually be in it in the moment. And frankly, for people who are experiencing that to not have someone who has gone through the same thing to actually believe that recovery is possible, that living their life is possible. It's one thing to be told by a professional that you can do it. I'm here and I can help you versus someone who's like, I have done this and I am doing this with you. And we are here together and I understand your experience in a way someone else doesn't. And I am not speaking out of my ass. Like I actually know this is possible and we can do it together. And so I, I just impromptu jumped into training as a mental health peer specialist. I got initially certified. I went through a supervised internship and I am finally finished and I'm just awaiting the full board certification to practice all by myself. And so once that happens, I am launching my practice to work one-on-one with people. I already have the group going. It's going to become a more official peer support group. And then I will be um, starting to work with new people in a new cohort of the group as well to, to bring this to more people. So. Wow. Really proud of you. Says you, the person who showed (laughs) me that, that anything like this is possible. I can't tell you how much I learned in awe of you holding space. Like, I don't think you know this because you aren't in, in the peer support space, but what you do for people and the, the way you hold space for people in your community, the way you 
are right there with them and you speak so candidly from your own experience to support them rather than being above them or trying to solve their problems and even asking permission um, to support them because sometimes they just want to be heard and they just want to say it out loud and leave it at that. Like the amount I learned of that being possible changed my life because I did not subscribe to the model of what was happening in other groups I've witnessed or seen about or watched where it's just speaking from above and telling people what to do and trying to solve their problems. You are just in so many ways, so incredible. And I, I could go on forever. Thank you. It means a lot from you. Thank you for, for sharing today. Um, I'm just so in awe of you and it's so interesting because part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show today, other than just, you know, I think the world of you and adore you is, you know, there have been so many moments over the last few years where I'm like, am I crazy? Like, what am I doing with my life? Like, am I supposed to do this? You know, those moments of doubt and questioning when we're on our path and we get kind of confused. It's, it's like you always knew when to send me a voice note. You flew from Texas to LA for my event to be there live. You came to lunch with Connor and I, not even knowing us <laughs> when we were in Texas. And you always just pop in. And I just want to thank you because you kept me going so many times that you didn't even know. And it means so much to me. And I was telling Connor this morning, you know, the thing that I'm going to miss most about doing this show is the people and the community that we've created together. Because as much as I know that I've helped people and supported people, and I'm so grateful for that, the way people like you have shown up in my life and carried me through difficult moments and encouraged me to continue to be more of myself, it has been such a gift. And I just want you to know how much you mean to me and you mean to this show and to this community. And I have witnessed people learn so much from you during the circles I have facilitated. And so I am so fucking proud of you for facilitating yourself and for holding space for other people and continuing in your healing journey um, and leading by example, because it is, it is not for the faint of heart and it is not something that everyone has the ability to do. And I'm, I just love witnessing you really step into yourself. And I am so excited for all of the lives that you are going to impact and change and just the way you get to expand from receiving. Like you get to receive now and I'm really, really excited for you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I am working on receiving what you just said because <laughs> I, uh, I know that that is part of our relationship, not just ignoring and pushing it back to you. And I also just feel compelled to reflect back to you that all the ways that you pointed out that I pop in and show up. What I have to tell you is that I had no, and I'm telling you, no example of what any form of a friendship or relationship that wasn't just me giving and giving and giving. That was, that was every, pretty much every relationship I've ever had. And, you know, if I wasn't bullied or, you know, just whatever in the past um, and coming into this new version of myself, which is when I met you, I met you and connected with you right before I went in for cancer surgery. It was, it was wild. When I I had no model for what any form of a friendship or relationship looks like with 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 someone, you know, like you or like anyone who wants to be just honest and authentic and true and and unconditionally loving. I, I don't think I, I knew anything like that. And so I followed the model that I feel like you gave me permission to follow because everything you said I did. I mean, what have, what have you done for me? You literally, you check, you've checked in on me in times that people that are right around me have never checked in on me for you without a question with like, you've surprised me with just so many thoughtful messages and, and gifts of things that came from the heart that, you know, served and supported me in such a beautiful way beyond what the physical gift was. You have just been there for me with no no intention, nothing beyond just loving me. And I didn't know that was possible. And so I had this permission to, 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 sh to try to show up that way for you and for you to, to 
recognize that I just want to know you, you co-created that and beyond this show, that is your life and what you will co-create with everyone who interacts with you in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. You need to know that. Thank you. Appreciate that. Little love fest with my girl, Uma. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the best. Well, it means so much to me that you get to be the final interview on this show and that we get to really come full circle together. Um, You've been through all the things I feel like with me. Um, So it's really it's really special. Thank you for sharing yourself and your heart and your experience today. Um, And we'll make sure to link in the show notes so that people can connect with you and learn more about you and follow along on your journey as well. But I love you and I will be seeing you soon. I love you more. So excited to see you soon. And thank you for creating this space for me to be myself and share myself and to feel so safe. I'm just so grateful and so honored to to be here with you. <laughs> <laughs>